0: Before we hear the word uh, read to us, please uh, join me in prayer. We want to pray, especially uh, this morning as we prayed for the Mathisons. we want to pray for Pastor Eric, uh, who is preaching at 1130 this morning at the uh, True Light Church in Paramus. So we'll add him to our prayer. Let's let's pray. Once again, our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for not only the, the power of your grace to transform us but also for the, the power of your word, which goes forth and accomplishes uh, your very will. Lord, as we look around, uh, both in our nation and, our, and around the world, we, we see a world, obviously, that you have created, also a world, Lord God, that is desperately broken and in desperately in need of you. We continue to pray, Father, for the, the churches and Christians in Ukraine, um, Father, that you would bring peace to that nation and peace between uh, them and and Russia, we we pray, Lord God, that those who are involved in the negotiations uh, would be granted your wisdom. Uh, we also recognize, O oh Lord, our, uh, our utter dependence upon you in prayer for this uh, this situation, and we pray as well, Lord God, for our own nation as uh, we just wonder father at times where things are going we are called Then at that point to just trust in your sovereignty and trust in your will we thank you for the responsibilities that you have given to us our jobs our homes and we pray lord that we would be faithful in serving you through the things that you have given to us and with the things that you have given to us we pray for pastor eric as he preaches this morning that your holy spirit Having uh, been working in and through his study that would anoint him as he preaches that the words, Father, that he speaks would be impactful because they come from your word. Uh, We pray for the, the Christians there at True Light Church as well, that you would help them to be salt and light, that their hearts and minds would be open and ready to receive your word, to act upon it in faith and obedience. We pray the same for ourselves this morning, Lord God. It's wonderful to sing strong and powerful words of songs of worship, music, Lord God, that moves us, lyrics that point us heavenward. And we know, Father, that with all of that emotion, there needs also then to be action to back it up. And so we pray for the help of your Spirit to help us uh, carry out the mission that you have given to us, to be salt and light, to be witnesses, to be those who would demonstrate the love of Christ. We pray, Lord God, uh, now for the hearing of your word and the preaching of it. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins, for Christ who has made it possible for us to stand in your presence without fear of judgment, but in the full assurance that we are robed with his righteousness and dwelt by your spirit, holy and forgiven and good in and through Christ. So Father, speak to us now, we ask, for. we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to finish the second half of Zechariah 6. I'll read the entire chapter. This is the the second half deals with the acted out prophecy, which we'll get to in just a moment. But the, the prophet, beginning in chapter verse 1 of chapter 6, says, Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses and the fourth chariot dappled horses all of them strong then i answered and said to the angel who talked with me what are these my lord and the angel answered and said to me these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the lord of all the earth the chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country the white ones go after them and the dappled ones go toward the south country When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah the son of Zephaniah take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest and say to him thus says the lord of hosts behold the man whose name is the branch for he shall branch out from this place and he shall build the temple of the lord it is he who shall build the temple of the lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit, on his, sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and hin the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass, if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. When we lived in Ohio, a friend of ours uh, who was a carpenter gave us several solid wood doors uh, to replace some of our older doors. I have very limited skill as a handyman. I can drive a nail, I can fix some things, but I cannot hang doors. Um, So he graciously installed all the hardware, including the hinges, which is uh, very difficult to do. And uh, I like hinges. Hinges are good things, especially when you're hanging doors. In addition to being useful for hanging doors, however, hinges are also useful in telling stories. They are useful devices in telling stories. And that's what we have in verses 9 to 15 in Zechariah 6. They act, these verses do, as a verbal hinge, connecting what has come before chapters 1 through 6, with what will follow chapter seven through 14. So forgive the, the dad joke, but verses six, nine to 15 of chapter six are the hinge on which swings the door to understanding chapters seven to 14. Before we get there, however, we need to deal with what verses nine to 15 say. And if you notice, when I read the, the text, and if you read the text as well, There is an abrupt transition from the end of verse 8 to verse 9. There is an abrupt transition, a change in scene from the four chariots' vision to the scene that takes place in verses 9 to 15. And despite that disruption, despite that kind of break, the two really are connected by a common theme, which is really the theme for the rest of the book, that God will answer Israel's cry for mercy. And this theme functions as the hinge that connects the first part of Zechariah with the second part. In fact, what you have in Zechariah 7 to 14, which we'll launch into next week, is an exposition of how indeed God will answer in very specific ways uh, Israel's cry for mercy. Now, we have seen this already. We have seen a foretaste of this in verses 1 to 8, where God promises to answer Israel's cry for mercy by taking vengeance upon her enemies. In verses 9 to 15, God promises to answer uh, Israel's cry for mercy by raising up a leader who will rule over them with truth and justice and faithfulness to God. This leader, however, will be unique. He will be unlike any leader in Israel's history. He'll be a new kind of leader who will lead, if you will, a new kind of people. He will be a new kind of leader because he will wear both the crown of a king ruling from a throne as well as the robes of a priest who is serving in the temple. And so this new leader, as we look at verses 9 through 11, this new leader will be both priest and king. So let's look at verses 9 through 11, just hear them again. Zechariah says the word of the Lord came to me take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah who have arrived from Babylon and go the same day to the house of Josiah the son of Zephaniah take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Now what we have here technically speaking is not a vision but what is referred to as an acted-out prophecy or, um, if you will, a sign act. And according to the, uh, the dictionary, Old Testament prophets, yes, there is such a thing. I'm sure you can find it online. Sign acts are like visual aids. They are nonverbal actions and objects that are used by prophets to communicate to his audience. And in most cases, the prophet is involved in the action itself. We heard Such a sign acts uh, this morning when Carson read to us from Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah goes to the house of the potter, and what does he see? He sees the potter uh, making a pot, and then he becomes dissatisfied with what he has made, and he destroys it, and he creates something new. And the Lord speaks to Jeremiah and says, "'Is not Israel like that clay in my hands?' And in fact, there's another act in our prophecy in Jeremiah 19, because in Jeremiah 19, he then takes the, the pottery that was made by the potter, fired in the kiln, and he stands before the elders of Jerusalem there, and he breaks that pottery, signifying how God will break the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the city itself. The, probably another uh, the, the most extreme example of an act in our prophecy, if you've have read the prophet Isaiah, uh, or Isaiah, if you are so inclined. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 20, Isaiah walked around naked for three years, symbolizing how God would judge the nations of Egypt and Cush for how they mistreated um, his people. Then you also have Ezekiel, who lays on his side for 300 and something days, and then after those days are up, God tells him, Lay on your other side for another 300 and something days, indicating how prostrate Israel, how defenseless Israel will be. And then later on in Zechariah 11, there's another acted out prophecy where he has two staffs, one named favor, one named union, and he breaks both of them, signifying that there's a break in God's favor and a break in union. So these are normal ways that God communicates through his people through these sign acts, and that's what we have here. What we have then is Zechariah is told to find these three men Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah. You heard me read a name called Helam and then Hane. Those are, Helam is another a nickname for Heldai, Hane is a nickname for Josiah. So these three fellows uh, are to be found. Zechariah is to go with them to the house of Josiah, and they are to make a crown. Now we don't know much about these four men other than the fact that they have arrived from Babylon, so they are exiles who have been returned, and they have uh, begun to, uh, if you will, rebuild their lives. Context likely tells us that these are priests who have returned uh, from exile, and they have with them silver and gold. Now, how is that possible? How is it possible for these exiles, who really had nothing, if you will, to have silver and gold with them? Well, The answer is found, of course, in the in the Bible, Uh, the book of Ezra, um, in Ezra one verses two through six, there is a decree that is issued by King Cyrus of Persia. Uh, The Lord moved upon Cyrus's heart. This is in fulfillment of prophecy that uh, Isaiah made two hundred years before uh, Zechariah's time, and um, Cyrus says this. He issues a decree. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, and everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly ware. Besides all that was freely offered, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed those um, in the house of his gods. So what God did simply was he plundered the Persians in the same way that the Israelites plundered the Egyptians when God released them from bondage in Egypt. So the silver and gold was just given to them by Cyrus, the king of Persia. And so they are then to use the silver and gold, not for their own advancement, but to make a, a crown. Now, scholars think that, uh, some think that what Zechariah did was make a crown that had, was of gold, it had silver inlaid in it. Others uh, will say, well, we think he made two crowns, one of gold, one of silver, a smaller one of silver that was inset like a diadem. The focus however, isn't on how many crowns he made. The focus is on who wears the crown. Because we would expect that when you make a crown, who wears crowns? Kings wear crowns. But right from the start, something is amiss here. Something is unusual. Something is odd. Something is out of place. This crown that they are to make is not to be set on the head of Zerubbabel, who you would expect as the governor, the the king in exile, if you will, but the crown is instead to be set on the head of Joshua. Now Joshua is a high priest. High priests don't wear crowns. The last time we saw Joshua was in Zechariah 3. When Zechariah seeing seen in, in symbolic form that the filthy rags and robes that Joshua wore were replaced with beautiful robes of, of, of uh, you know, cleanliness and righteousness, and then a clean turban is placed on his head, not a crown. Kings wear crowns. And in Israel, the kings of Israel, they descended from the tribe of Judah and they traced their lineage through the house of David. The priests in Israel, however, they descended from the tribe of Levi. And moreover, high priests descended through the line of Aaron, Aaron himself being a Levite. So while most priests were Levites, not all Levites were priests in the sense that they served specifically in the temple as high priest. You had to be a descendant of Aaron, and they didn't wear crowns, but this high priest, this Joshua, son of Jehozadek, he does. Even more surprising is in dealing with the prophecy of how this priest who wears a king would have a role on, by sitting on the throne. It's another kind of uh, red herring, if you will, because the two offices never overlapped in the Old Testament. Kings ruled from a throne. Priests served in the temple. Kings were prohibited from going into the temple to make sacrifices. You read in, uh, I think it's the account of uh, Isaiah, uh, in Kings rather, King Uzziah goes into the temple to offer sacrifices and he is struck with leprosy. You're not supposed to do that. In the same way, kings don't sit on, uh, priests don't sit on king's thrones. So these two offices never mixed. But when uh, Zechariah sets that crown on Joshua's head, we know that the prophetic stage is set for the anticipated arrival of a new kind of leader, a priest-king. Now, we have seen this before. The the first time this hybrid of uh, priest and king appears is way back in the, the book of Genesis. In Genesis 14, 18, Abraham is returning from having uh, defeated several kings and and rescued his nephew Lot. And as he is uh, dealing with the spoils of war, he is greeted, we're told, by a man named Melchizedek, who is king of Salem, and he was also priest of God Most High. The next time we hear about this Melchizedek, this priest-king, is in Psalm 110, where we're told that Psalm 110 is a psalm about the coming Messiah, about the coming King of kings and Lord of lords, the Savior. In Psalm 110, we're told that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then the penultimate uh, mention of Melchizedek in the Scriptures is in the letter to the Hebrews, in particular Hebrews 7.1. In comparing the ministry of Jesus... To the ministry of Melchizedek, the writer of the Hebrew says, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham and blessed him. And the writer of the Hebrew is referring to Melchizedek in his dual office as king and priest in order to prove that Jesus is the promised priest-king of a higher order and better rank than Melchizedek. So keep track with me here. Melchizedek is the copy. Jesus is the original. Joshua is the symbol. Jesus is the reality. Joshua is the shadow. Jesus is the substance. Joshua is the promise. Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the true priest king. So when Zechariah sets that crown on Joshua's head, He is acting out a prophecy, the fulfillment of which lays centuries ahead. So he is participating in something. He doesn't have full understanding of its implication. He simply knows something unique is happening here. Something different is taking place. And it's a good place to stop here as well, just to take a little bit of a side route and think about the the composition of the scriptures and how they are connected and interconnected. You think about the fact that Genesis is written 900 years or so before Zechariah, Zechariah is written some 500 years before the birth of Christ, and several hundred years—you know—and certainly before the letter to the Hebrews, which was written centuries after Genesis, century after Zechariah. Yet all three books, written by three different authors, all writing centuries apart, use the same story to emphasize the same theme of this priest-king who will come and be a new kind of leader. How can this be? And some will dismiss that whole connection by simply saying, well, you know, that's just a coincidence. You know, a couple of guys got together in the back room and they started just comparing notes and we'll do a cross-reference and there you go. And, and then I would ask, I'm based on what evidence? This isn't about coincidence. It's about authorship. Because all three books have a common theme because all three books are written by a common author, which is God the Holy Spirit. That he inspired men to write the Bible not by overruling their personality, but by working through their personality. So we trust the trustworthiness of the Bible because we trust the trustworthiness of the author. And Zechariah belongs to a long line of spirit-inspired authors and prophets. Woven into this acted out prophecy is a promise. God will answer Israel's cry for mercy by sending them a new kind of leader. And in answering their cry, he answers our cry. Because in the New Testament, we know this priest-king, this new kind of leader, is in fact Jesus. He is the promised priest-king who will build his church by gathering to himself a new people to carry out a new mission. This is at the heart of Paul's letter to the Ephesians particularly in Ephesians 2 when he's talking about the fact that gentiles who were far off which is mentioned in this text at the very end gentiles who were far off are brought near how through the preaching of the gospel the preaching of Jesus as the prince king the priest king so as these gentiles are brought in to Christ both Jew and Gentile Paul says are made into one new race all for the purpose of being built together into a holy dwelling in which God dwells by His Spirit to proclaim the, His glory and manifest His glory to the nations. So all of this points forward to something that we are the recipients and the participants of even now. This new leader, who is Jesus, really is a fulfillment of a promise made a long time ago. Not in a galaxy far, far away, right, but in a world that God created in which real people live real people served, real people died, and real people died in faith, believing in the promise that was made. They saw the physical fulfillment. We live in the certainty of that fulfillment as well as in faith in that promise to be kept at the end of time. The old covenant mandated, this is now, we'll pick up in verses 12 to 15 in just a moment. The old covenant mandated, you understand, a separation between offices of priest and king. Zechariah's sign act, his acted out prophecy, anticipates the day when these two offices will be united in one person, the priest king whose name is the branch. So let's just, let's just pick that up in verses 3, 12 to 15. So this is after he sets the crown on Joshua's head. The Lord says to Zechariah, you tell Joshua this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is a branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit on and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam. that's Heldai, to Bijah, Jediah, and Hain, that's Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So this dual office, this new kind of leader, represents a change, a significant change in which God will now deal with his people. You know that throughout the history of Israel, the character of the king determined the destiny of the nation. Good king, a righteous king who did what was right in God's eyes, the nation flourished, the nation prospered. A bad king, one who did not do what was right in God's eyes, led the people into idolatry, the nation is punished for that, and that's what led to Israel and Judah's destruction and exile. Unfortunately, the same thing was true of the priests. They were no better in terms of holiness, righteousness, and goodness. If you read Ezekiel 8, the prophet is taken by God in a vision to Jerusalem through a hole in the wall in the temple, and he sees there the priests... And the elders in Jerusalem practicing every manner of abomination and act of idolatry right there in the temple. And so this prophecy that Zechariah participates in anticipates the day that Israel will have the good king and will have the holy priest because Israel needed both. Both offices failed. And when you track the story of the Old Testament you see this up-and-down character where God raises someone up, and everyone thinks, that's the guy. That's the one. And then he fails. And now you have to start from scratch. So you have it first with Noah, who saves people in the ark. You think, there it is. There's the Savior. The ark representing you know, the church and all that. And then what is Noah? He gets drunk. <laughs> right? And, and, uh, and down that goes. Then it comes Abraham. And Abraham, although he is a great man of faith, Abraham himself, he, he lies. He says to Sarah, Tell them that you're my, you're my sister, and, and that gets him into trouble. He fails. And then on and goes. David rises, and he fails. And, until and all of that is to point out the fact that ultimately there must be one whose obedience to God is full, perfect, and complete, who can not only have and possess a good and holy and righteous character, but then can transfer that character to his people, to his followers. Noah couldn't do that, Abraham couldn't do that, David couldn't do that, Moses couldn't do that, none of the prophets could do that. There's only one who could do that, and we're pretty, we're pretty clear about that from the scriptures, that's Jesus. So Israel needed a king, needed a priest who would only do, not only do what was right in God's eyes, but would be right with God from the, before he was even conceived in his mother's womb. So they needed a king and a priest who was not made good or who became good, but one who is good from eternity. And that one, says Zechariah, the Lord through Zechariah, is the branch. We know from Zechariah's prophecy that the branch is a descendant of King David. We read it sometimes during uh, Advent season. Isaiah 11:1 1 says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. Right? The prophet Jeremiah says the same thing in Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Again, in Jeremiah 33, 15 and 16, the prophet says, in those days and at that time, this is talking about the new covenant that he will make, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely and this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So if Zechariah and his contemporaries have grown up hearing about these prophecies. The moment that the Lord speaks to Zechariah and says, this is the branch, there's one coming, there is an immediate connection with the past, which looks toward the future. So when you think about sort of the, where the exiles are and the need to know, is God going to be with us? Our forefathers have sinned. We have spent 70 years away from our homeland. Now we're here. How do we pick up the pieces? How can we be sure that God will be with us as he was with them? And the connection is the branch and the prophecy about the branch. How do we know that we are connected to Zechariah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses, David, Peter, Paul? How do we know? Because we have been connected to them by the one who connects us all who is the branch who is jesus so if you sit there at, at some mornings or you're, you're on your way to work or late at night when you're worrying and fretful am i somehow connected to the body of christ am i in the kingdom well if by faith you have believed in jesus christ you are connected to the branch and by being connected to the branch you are connected to everyone in this room and having been connected to everyone in this room you are connected we are connected to everyone throughout history, who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. The branch is a person, which tells us that God is interested in connecting and communicating to us in a deeply intimate and personal way, In the same way that he creates man from the dust of the ground and breathes into him, the same way that God creates, using his hands, if you will, in Genesis 2, is the same way that he now connects with us. Because those same hands that formed Adam from the dust of the ground received nails to secure for us an eternal salvation. So that branch that was nailed to a tree becomes a very source of life for those who would put their faith in him. The branch is God's anointed Messiah. He is the priest-king who is holy from the time before he was even conceived in his mother's womb. The Savior who is the Lord of all, who is God's chosen redeemer to save his people. He is called the Lord his righteousness. Why? Because from his righteousness, we receive righteousness. That's why he has to be holy and righteous from eternity. Because that's the only way it can be transferred to us. It's, it's the whole point of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Right? He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God through Him. It's called the great exchange. We give Christ our sin, He gives us His righteousness. But it doesn't stop with that. Because he's not simply the the, the righteousness, if you will. He is, in fact, the very sacrifice as well. He is the priest who makes us into a kingdom and priests. Like living stones being built into a spiritual house in whom God lives by his Holy Spirit. That he is not simply priest, holy, good, and righteous, but he himself is a sacrifice. That's why I think it's important if you want to connect what's happening in Zechariah to what's going on in the New Testament, read the book of Hebrews. Read the letter to the Hebrews. If you don't want to read the entire book, read chapters 8 to the rest of the book where it talks about the sacrifice of Christ and the role of Christ as a great high priest and sacrifice. That he, the, The letter to the Hebrews talks about the fact that every high priest in Israel had to make sacrifices first for himself, and then for the people. But he says, when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, he didn't offer a sacrifice for himself because he was the sacrifice. He entered once for all, he says, into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal salvation. This is the hope that's being communicated by this sign act to Zechariah and his fellow priests. This is the hope that we see revealed in Christ. This is the hope we cling to by faith as promised by God, which is the inheritance of all those who trust in his son, that Jesus is in fact the king who leads the people that he has ransomed from every tribe and language, every people and nation. It's the great song of the Lamb Revelation 5, where where after seeing the, the, the scroll there, John weeps because there's no one worthy to open the scroll. And then suddenly he says, I turned and saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And it was proclaimed, that's the one who can open the scroll. And then a song is sung to him. We know the lamb is Christ. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We sang about the fact that Christ may have been slain, but he is resurrected. This proclaims that. And he is resurrected, and so that by his blood having ransomed and purchased us, we may serve him and others as priests. Because what does a priest do? We receive the grace of God and then we extend it to others. As we have been forgiven, we forgive. As we have been blessed, we bless. As we have received the word, we share the word. As we have been given the light, we spread the light. As we have been preserved as by salt, We spread that salt around. So we reign and serve at the same time. Because in the end, whatever authority we have as priests is a delegated authority. As soon as the crown is set on Joshua's head, it's removed and it's placed in the temple as a reminder to the priests. Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, and even to Zechariah himself as well as to Joshua. The crown did not belong to him. It belonged to a high priest who would descend from another tribe, who would come from a different order. It didn't belong to Zerubbabel. It belongs to the branch. Because as far back as Genesis, before Zechariah, God made a promise through the patriarch Jacob. In Genesis 49, Jacob is giving the blessing to the, his sons, and he's going through each son's name, and he's blessing them. When he comes to Judah, he says in Genesis 49:10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and to him shall be the obedience of of the peoples now the he in until he comes to whom it belongs is the branch and the branch is Jesus all authority belongs to him he says so at the end of Matthew's gospel all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth he wears the crown he is the son of man who is the son of God who is priest and king he is the branch through whom God will create and is creating a new community comprised of Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. He is the Lord of righteousness through whom <clears throat> He is the Lord of righteousness whom God made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God through Him. So we all wear a crown of one form or another, don't we? We all exercise a kind of authority. At least we try to in as many areas of our lives. Sometimes we throw our authority around in order to get people to give us what we want or to do what we want. But in the end, all authority is designated authority. It's delegated authority. Whether it's in the church, whether it's ministry in the temple, whether it's leadership of a nation, leadership in the home, leadership at work, or service at home, or service at work. All authority is delegated authority. God tells Zechariah to put the crown in the temple because it doesn't belong to Joshua, it doesn't belong to Zerubbabel, it belongs to someone else. Before Jesus, we understand, before Jesus could wear that crown of gold and silver, he had to wear another crown. He had to wear a crown of thorns before he could be coronated. in fact, his coronation as priest and king comes not with the coronation of a crown of silver and gold, but his coronation as priest and king comes with a crown of thorns. It's interesting, and I don 't quite know the connection, so this is take this as malanga sort of slant on what's happening. when John the beloved disciple, sees Jesus for the first time in Revelation 1. His vision of Jesus, white hair, eyes of fire, golden sash, feet like burnished bronze, there's no crown on Jesus' head. The the next time, the only time, the first time that John sees Jesus wearing a crown is in Revelation 19, where Jesus comes as a conqueror, as the, the vanquisher of all evil, the ultimate uh, destroyer, if you will, and judge of Babylon. I'm not sure what the connection is, but I like that image. Because it, it points forward the fact that Christ is reigning now. He's interceding for us now. He's praying for us now as priest. Already seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, so he has a measure of authority. But that crowning moment, that crowning moment when we will see him with the crown, that, that is yet to come. Right now, we see it by faith. But here's the thing. There's no crown without a cross. The path to glory for Christ goes through the valley of humiliation. The path to glory goes through the valley of the shadow of death. So, so why do we struggle? Why do we suffer? Why do we find it so hard to follow Jesus? (laughs) Well, if you're like me, it's because we like wearing our homemade crown. We like being the master of our fate and the captain of our soul. We like giving Jesus only so much control, but not all control. And yet at the moment of truth, Hours before his crucifixion, when sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground, Jesus committed his faith and he entrusted his soul to his heavenly Father. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, is what he said. There is no crown without a cross. And if we are to follow Jesus, If we are to be happy in him, um, there is, as in the words of the old hymn, (laughs) no other way but to trust and obey. We must, as we have sung about it, cast our crown at the feet of our Savior and worship him who is the great king, the great high priest, the new leader, come to lead a new kind of people who would lead a new kind of life. He is the branch through whom we are connected with God the Father and God the Spirit and with one another. And with millions who have come before and should the Lord tarry, millions, perhaps billions who will come after. He is the one through whom we are made the righteousness of God, the atoning sacrifice for sins who makes us a kingdom of priests, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, the architect the builder, the cornerstone of the temple of the Lord. In fact, he is the temple. That temple that's mentioned in verse 15 of Zechariah, that's built by Jesus. It's not built by Zerubbabel. It's a different kind of temple, the one of which Jesus is the architect and the founder. He is, after all, the stone the builders rejected, but is now the cornerstone, the one in whom we are being built together into a holy dwelling place of God by the Holy Spirit what peter means when he says as you come to him every week as we come to him a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of god chosen and precious you yourselves are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to god through jesus christ that's the church That's the church that Christ is building. And from now on until he returns, he will continue building his church. He will continue to gather more and more people to himself, people who are living a new kind of life, following a new kind of leader, carry out a new kind of mission. By his grace, by his goodness, by his righteousness, he has made us partners in this glorious mission. You think about that. And, and may the Lord help us to follow him with all faithfulness, diligence, hope, and joy. Let's pray. Father, as we give consideration to the, the, the power and consistency and constancy of your word, remind us that we have one who is priest and king, who has made us a kingdom and priests as well to serve him and to witness about him to others. That there is a king who rules. That though we may uh, at times suffer in the cause and service of our king, it is a suffering that he himself has endured and has overcome by trusting in you. So let us be faithful, O Lord God, as we contemplate your word, that we might live as those whom you have saved and redeemed as salt and light. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.